You can take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 8, Genesis chapter 12. Our text will be comprised from various passages uh, from Genesis 12, mostly 12, 15, and 17. And you'll see why as we get into our message, why we are spacing it across these uh, several episodes. As you know, if you've been attending with us for the past few weeks, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Encounters with God, Stories of Grace Overcoming Guilt. And our objective in this series is to ask this question, what happens when God confronts a human being? When God takes His Word and His presence and takes a, a person right in the middle of his or her sin and struggles and, and, and speaks to them. And we see this with the life of uh, Adam and Eve after they sinned. Last Sunday we saw this with Cain. Right after he, in his anger, had killed his brother Abel, God came to him and asked Cain, why are you angry? You've got to control his anger. After he killed his brother Abel, God came to him and says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and we learned how God confronts a person in his anger. And now we're going to be looking at God speaking to Abraham, and this begins in Genesis chapter 12. Now, the Bible is a big book, isn't it? If you have a copy of the Bible, I just want you to look at it and notice what a big book you're holding. It's really a library of 66 books. If you don't have a Bible, you can even, if you're using a digital version of it, you can even take that pew Bible in front of you just to handle it and to remind yourselves what a vast book this is. Uh, even for people who have been reading the Bible for many years will recognize that trying to take this in can be an overwhelming thing because the Bible is such a big book. It's helpful when we're dealing with something so vast to have some landmarks, uh, something that we can just break it up and understand, okay, here's what's being said in this section, here's what's being said in this section. And when you turn to Genesis chapter 12, you're turning to such a landmark. It's almost like a continental divide in Scripture in which we have this, the narrative is working one direction and suddenly things change and they get really, really specific. And I think you'll understand why as I explain to you the storyline of Scripture up to this point. Three main things have happened before Genesis chapter 12. The first big event is the creation. God, by His kingly authority, spoke the universe into existence, and at the very pinnacle of His creation, He put human beings in this beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. And He made them to exercise dominion over that garden and over the rest of the created order, and he gave them one opportunity through a command to express their volitional obedience to him so that they could actually obey him, not just because they're robots, but because they're choosing to obey him. And what was the one opportunity he gave them? He gave them a command. He said, of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat, but there's just this one tree that you can't eat. Now, at the instigation of a serpent, Adam and Eve choose to doubt God's good word they choose suspicion over faith. They choose doubt over belief, and they reach and they take that one fruit that was forbidden and therefore ratify their rebellion against God. That's the first thing that happened was the creation. The second thing that happened is the fall. And the third is the aftermath of that fall, which we begin to see after Genesis chapter 3. In the very second generation after human, humans decide to rebel against God, the human race begins to implode with the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. 
and things continue to spiral out of control. And as we get to Genesis chapter 11, we've had the flood in which God wipes out nearly all of humanity and starts over with Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. You have just eight people left. As, and, and when they get off the, of the ark, it's obvious that sin nature was not exterminated because of the flood. Noah still sins. His descendants still sin. It's almost as if the, the poison that's been injected into the, the bloodstream of humanity has not been exterminated by the waters of the flood. And so the question that we're asking by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11 is, what's going to happen? So what is God's plan to make things right again? When God wants to activate His plan to restore these human beings who have been ruining themselves by their own evil, what is God going to do? It's not just a question for the storyline of the Bible. This is a really personal question, too. What does God do when He activates His plan to restore us to a right relationship with Him? Because when you read Genesis 1 through 11, you realize that the sins that are being described are not just sins way back then. They're sins we experience right now. Doubt? Yeah. Anger? Absolutely. Blame shifting? Yes. Self-deceit? Yes. Violence? Yes. All of these things are being replicated today. I mean, for an old book, the Bible is pretty up-to-date. Even if you don't accept the Bible as the Word of God, you have to at least accept that it's pretty relevant. So relevant, in fact, it seems like someone may have hacked into your computer and read about you. Because it describes us in such astonishing detail, and it analyzes our condition with such accuracy that we realize that someone is speaking about us, my condition, our condition, your condition, the condition of our culture, what we see all around us. And the question not only for the storyline of Scripture, but also the question for us as individuals, for you as a person right now today, is what is the plan? Like, what is God going to do when He wants to activate a plan to make things right again? And the answer to that question we find in chapter 12 of Genesis. And it comes in this form. God makes a covenant. The question is, what does God do when He wants to restore these rebellious creatures to a right relationship with Him? Here it is. He makes a covenant. So, I said that Genesis chapter 12 is like a continental divide in this big, vast tract of Scripture? Okay, why is it? Because up to this point, God has been dealing with humans in general, and now God focuses on the life of one man, Abram, and He makes a promise with him. And this promise is so special, it's called a covenant. And so taken together, these episodes throughout Abraham's life are going to reveal three things about this covenant. The meaning of the covenant, the conditions of the covenant, and the fulfillment of the covenant. The meaning of the covenant, the conditions of the covenant, and the fulfillment of the covenant. Before we get into this part of our message, let's ask the Lord to bless our time and help us. Our Father, we are going to look into your word, and we need your help. I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to receive what you have for us so that our response would not be a response of doubt or distrust, but of faith and repentance. 
you will speak to us because you've promised that this is your word and that we'll not return to you empty, but it's going to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word covenant, we don't use that very often. You might not have used the word covenant this past week. Uh, it's not a, very often in our vocabulary. So we need to explain what this, is, what this word means. So simply state, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement or partnership between two parties involving promises or conditions that both parties must keep in order for that to work. I'll say that again. A covenant is an agreement or a partnership between two parties involving conditions or promises that both parties must uphold, must keep, in order for that whole thing to work. And you see that this covenant that God enters into with Abraham has certain conditions. If you're in Genesis chapter 12, I want you to flip over to Genesis chapter 17. Because I want you to see the meaning of the covenant, that it has conditions. Notice carefully the language of conditions here, that is requirements of the covenant. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, God speaks to Abram and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. There is a command. Verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you. Note the language of conditions. There's a condition, and what is the condition of this covenant? It is walk before me and be blameless. You don't need to turn there, but there's another condition that's summarized in chapter 18, verse 19. I'll read it to you. God says, for I have chosen him, that is speaking of Abram, that he may command his children and his household after him, and there's a language of condition, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, here is the reference to the covenant, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So, a covenant is something like a contract. You know what a contract is, right? You signed a contract before. You understand that there's terms and conditions in a, in a contract. There's a, uh, the church that I ministered at uh, previously before coming here. We put an addition on our church building, and to do so, we made a contract with the builder. And we're saying, we're going to give you money, and you're going to make us this building. If we don't give him the money, he doesn't make us the building. And if he doesn't make us the building, we don't give him the money. It's got to work both ways, right? Both parties have to come together for this in order for it to work. If, if either party doesn't come together, contract's off. It's not happening. That's on a very trivial level. This is what I did with Pastor Ben this past week. I had an idea. I ran out of my office, and I said, hey, Pastor Ben, do you have a, a rubber band? And he pulled a rubber band off his desk, and I said, okay, you hold this end, and I'll hold this end, and we both pulled. Now, in order for that to work without somebody getting snapped, both people have to uphold their end of the covenant, right? Both people got to keep their commitment. It's, it requires both parties in order for this to work. And on a more significant level, this would be as if you went into partnership with somebody for an investment of $100,000, and the agreement is I put $50,000 in, you put $50,000 in, and we both have to come and do our part for this contract to work. So a covenant is like a contract, but it's unlike a contract in a certain way. Because when you make a contract with somebody, you don't really have to like them. You just make a contract with them. It's an agreement. It's on paper. But with a covenant, there's something deeper and more intimate. 
It's not just the sterile uh, contract. There is, there's love. So it's like, it's, it's rules with love. It's rules with a relationship. Someone has put it this way, that it is a, an astonishing blend of law and love. And you see the personal nature of the covenant when you go back to chapter 17 and look at verse 2. Notice the wording here. God is saying that I may make my covenant between me and you. Pay close attention to the pronouns. That's a personal thing. And may multiply you greatly. Look at verse 4. God says to Abram, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Look at verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Notice the language of intimacy and relationship at the end of verse 7. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. There is a personal nature that's amplified even greater in the end of verse 8 when, it's, when God says, I will be their God. This is not just a, a sterile contract. This is both, yes, there's rules, there's regulation, but it's also love. And so it's an, it's a, the covenant is a, this fusing, this blending of law and love. And the closest thing we have to this kind of covenant in our culture, the closest thing we have to this is marriage, the marriage covenant. Yesterday, I had the honor of officiating at the wedding ceremony of uh, Matt and Noel. And I stood there and listened to their vows to each other. What are they doing? They're saying, I love you so much that I'm willing to enter into this love relationship in a formal way, with promises, with rules that I promise I will not break. And so, in order for this to work, you, it's not sufficient for you just to have rules because a marriage that's purely legal would not be a satisfying marriage. But a relationship in which people are not willing to promise to each other their devo devotion and commitment, you've you got to wonder, well, do you love each other if you're not willing to make this official? And so, in a similar way, a covenant is this blending of law and love. The most fulfilling, the most satisfying and meaningful relationships are the ones that are a partnership that mo are motivated by love and upheld by mutual promises. And this is why throughout Scripture you have God comparing Himself uh, to a husband having married His people, expressing the relationship uh, that God has toward His people as a relationship between husband and wife bound together in marriage. This is, this is a covenant. I'll read a couple of these verses to you. This is from Isaiah chapter 54. God says this, for your maker, speaking to his people, for your maker is your husband. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. So let's go back to the question that we asked originally. When God wants to activate a plan with human beings to restore them to a right relationship with him, and all the chaos of, of the life of human, the human race that we've seen up to this point in Genesis. And in the very chaos and struggles that you and I face in our lives, what does God do when he wants to make things right? He makes a covenant. This partnership between humans and himself involving conditions that both must uphold in order to make 
it work. And what's the whole point of this? The whole point of this covenant is expressed in these words. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is a refrain that we see all throughout Scripture, from Genesis even all the way to Revelation. I will be their God, they will be my people. That's the goal of the covenant. But what's the catch, okay? Because this all sounds really good. You know, when I'm looking for a product on, on a website somewhere and it looks like a really good product, you know, I always look for that pricing tab. Because I know it can't be, this all can't be for free. And I see, oh, there's a pricing thing and it's going to give me what are the conditions for this. So we looked at the meaning of the covenant. The meaning of the covenant is this partnership between two parties involving conditions or promises that both must keep in order for it to work. But second, the conditions of the covenant. What is this going to cost? What will it take for God and humans to live in harmony again? Turn back to Genesis chapter 12. I want you to see God's part, God's part of this covenant. What does God promise that He's going to do? We read this in the first few verses of Genesis 12, which God says, I'll read this again beginning in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, three components to this promise. The first is, is descendants. A little problem here, Abram didn't have any children, and he and his wife were really old, the way past childbearing years. So that seems pretty astounding. But God says, I'm going to give you descendants, and these descendants will become a great nation. So that's one component to the promise. And the second one is land. Abram, you're going to have a land to live in. You're not going to be a nomad and a wanderer. Your people will actually have a place and the third component is this component of blessing. So land and place and blessing. And doesn't this just make sense in the storyline of Scripture up to this point? What happened when Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they had to go out of their land. They were driven out of the Garden of Eden. They lost their land in which God dwelt with them, the, the place of His blessing. What happened to their descendants? Their descendants inherited the curse. Cain kills his brother Abel, and things continue to spiral out of control. So they lose their descendants. What about the blessing that God had given to Adam and Eve? Well, that was turned into a curse. This curse has affected the, the universe ever since. And so what God is promising to Abram here is reversing all these things that happened because of the fall. God is going to have a people again, and they are going to be in a land, a place, a, a paradise, a garden, and there's going to be descendants, and there is going to be this blessing. And not only will they be blessed, but they will also have this astonishing privilege of being a channel of blessing to all other nations of the earth. It's interesting, up to this point in the book of Genesis, you have the word curse, or cursed, it occurs five times. And then here in Genesis chapter 12, you have the word bless or blessing five times. Right, God's, God's going to bless His people. This is what He promised to do. That's God's part. But what is Abraham's part? I looked, we, remember, both parties have to uphold their part of the agreement. Or conditions involving promises that both must keep. That's God's part. What's Abram's part? Well, look back at chapter 17. What does Abram have to do? Verse 1. Here it is. Walk before me and be blameless. That's all. 
Just be perfect. Just do what Adam and Eve didn't do. Walk with God. And as we read further on, we understand more what this takes, especially when God brings Abraham's descendants out of the land of captivity and he starts making some laws for them. And he starts detailing for them, okay, here's what it's going to take to walk before me and be blameless. It's going to take a tabernacle. It's going to take messy, expensive sacrifices involving killing goats and cows. And it's going to involve costly, priestly robes. And it's going to involve coming together, leaving your work, and going to these these festivals, and it's required taking out of the seven days of the week, taking one in which you promise not to do any work just so you can worship God. This is going to be really expensive, and it's going to be really costly, and you read the book of Exodus and Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you get the idea that whatever it takes to walk before God and be blameless is really, really complicated, and it's really, really hard. And why is it so complicated and hard? Do you realize what was lost in the Garden of Eden? Do you realize the most precious thing in the universe, that is a relationship between God and humans, was shattered? When something precious is shattered, it's always really complicated to put it back together. Have you ever broken a vase? Is it complicated? Think about this. The most precious thing in the universe, shattered. Yes, it is expensive. Yes, it is complicated. Yes, it is costly to make it right again. That's Abraham's part. Walk before me and be blameless. Let me ask you this question then. I looked at, we looked at God's part. Remember, we're looking at the conditions of the covenant, God's part. You got the blessing, the descendants, the land. I will be with you as your God. You'll be my people. Abraham's part. Walk before me and be blameless. So how did the covenant work out? How did Abraham do? Did he fulfill his part of the covenant? Well, you look at the story of Abram's life. It's not an easy answer, is it? It's like he did some things really well, and he did other things really not well. He lied about his wife. He was really a fearful guy in some cases. He, he let his wife give, her, uh, give uh, his, her servant to him as a concubine because he, in a moment of doubt, didn't think that God would be able to actually give him and Sarah kids. He had a child through Hagar, and then when it was clear that Hagar was expecting and she was given a child, Sarah was jealous and wanted to send Hagar away, and Abraham let her do that and mistreat her servant. No, we, we can't look at Abram's life and, and say honestly that he walked before God and was perfect. And we certainly can't say that about Abram's descendants. I mean, the, the story of the Old Testament is a story of failure after failure after failure. And so the big question that we need to ask is, what happens to the covenant then? Remember I said that a covenant is a partnership or agreement between two parties in which both must uphold their part of the covenant in order for it to work? The question is, we could put it this way, is the covenant conditional or unconditional? Another way to put it is this. Is obedience necessary? Is perfect obedience necessary or not? Because we, we go through the Bible and it seems in some cases as if the 
covenant is unconditional. Listen to verses like this. God says in Leviticus 26, 42, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. It's like God is saying, I'm never ever going to forsake you. I'll never break my covenant with you. But in other cases, listen to this. God says, if you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, this is Joshua 23, 16, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land that he has given you. And the question is, is God going to require perfect obedience to the covenant? Is it necessary to obey God perfectly for this covenant to work? If so, the covenant is broken because people didn't obey Him perfectly. The other question is, okay, will God not require perfect obedience to the covenant? Well, in that case, the covenant's broken because for it to work, it requires both parties to come through. And this is more than just a logical puzzle. This is more than just a puzzle about Scripture. This is a personal puzzle, a personal question. Is God going to require perfect obedience from you? If so, then we are hopeless because we don't perfectly obey. Will God not require perfect obedience from you? Well, if so, then God's not a righteous God because the Bible tells us that He's holy and He expects perfect obedience. And so we're going to end this second point, the conditions of the covenant, with that question and move into the third one, which is this, the fulfillment of the covenant. So we've looked at the meaning of the covenant, the conditions of the covenant, and third, the fulfillment of the covenant. And for this, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And as you turn there, I want to explain to you something about the Hebrew language. The expression to make a covenant in Hebrew is literally this to cut a covenant. You're like, cut a covenant? What do you mean? Well, it'll become clear to us as we look at what happens here. Because in verse 9 of Genesis 15, God tells Abram to bring a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He has these animals. He brings these, and what does he do with them? Look at verse 10. He cuts them in half. This is, this is messy. This is cutting a covenant. He takes the halves of these animals. He puts one right here, half of it 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 right here. Freshly slaughtered animals, all bleeding. He cuts them in half. And the birds, he doesn't cut in half. He sets them by themselves. Now, in ancient ceremonies, in making a covenant, both parties of the covenant would walk through these severed animals, and by this they were symbolizing, may what happened to these animals happen to me if ever I fail to uphold my part of this covenant. May I be like this slaughtered heifer if I ever don't fulfill the conditions of the covenant. And we get nervous when signing on a dotted line. (laughs) And they take their covenants very seriously. But what is completely astonishing to us about this covenant ceremony 
in contrast to the way that they would do those things in ancient times. There are two things that completely astonish us. The first is this. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Here's what's astonishing. For this covenant ceremony, Abram was fast asleep. Remember I said normally both parties of the covenant would walk through the slaughtered animals? Well, one of them was sleeping, Abram. The other thing that's astonishing, the only party of the covenant that walked through was God, symbolized in verse 17 by a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. Look at this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those, these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, how could this be? This is as if God is saying, I'm taking all this on myself. All the conditions of the covenant fall on me. God is symbolizing by being the one to pass through these slaughtered animals. I will, God is saying, I will uphold my side and your side, the divine side and the human side. And it is as if God is saying, may the curse fall on me if the conditions are not fully met. May I be like these slaughtered animals if the conditions are not fully met. And this, this conclusion, this interpretation is so perplexing and so startling even that people have sought to get a different take on this. But it is not confusing or perplexing when we understand what Jesus was doing when He died on the cross, when He was slaughtered for us, when He bore the curse for us and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because He was upholding both sides of the covenant. There's only one person who walked before God and was blameless in every way, and that was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk before me and be blameless, God tells Abram. He can't do it. Walk before me and be blameless, he tells Moses. He can't do it. Walk before me and be blameless, he tells all the prophets to the nations of Judah and Israel. They can't do it. And all the kings, they can't do it. And then on the scene comes this one man, fully God, fully man. And he says, I always do the things that please the Father. And he becomes so obedient. How obedient was Jesus? Here's how obedient he was. So obedient that he obeyed to the point of death on the cross. Is the covenant conditional or unconditional? Yes. It's conditional because it depends on obedience. It's unconditional because Jesus Christ obeyed. Does it depend on obedience? Yes, it does. Someone must obey. Jesus did. Is there a curse for the disobedience? Yes, there is, but the curse fell on him, not us. And this is the beauty and, and marvel of the gospel, that the very one who perfectly upheld the, the conditions of the covenant was also the very one who bore the curse as if he had not kept it. My friends, that is the gospel. That is the news of what Jesus has done for you. That is the answer to the question that we asked at the very beginning. When human beings are so defiled and so sinful and, and we have we've inflicted such damage upon ourselves as we read of from Genesis 1 through 11. What does God do? He makes a covenant. 
But he makes a covenant that must be upheld by both parties, but he knows that we can't do it, so he sends Jesus Christ to be our Savior, to die for us. And that's how he saves human beings. That's how he saves you and me if we only cry out to him in faith. This is exactly why Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. You don't need to turn there, but I want you to listen so carefully so you understand the full continuity and connectedness of this. Paul writes in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And that's why before he went to the cross, Jesus had a supper with his, his disciples and he took this cup of wine and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Yeah, there was a covenant in the blood of bulls and goats, but there is a new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And that new covenant is not like the old covenant which could not be kept. This new covenant is a covenant that Jesus upholds. And remember, this is not just an ancient question. It's a personal one. What does God offer you to save you? He offers a covenant, a promise in Jesus Christ. And this is the story of grace. This is the story of grace overcoming guilt. And so how do we respond? There's only one way to respond. And that is to respond exactly as Abram did. When God gave Abram this promise, he said, Abram, look at the sky. There's a dark night, a clear night. He looks at the stars. God says, see if you could count those. No way. God says, so shall your descendants be. And you know what happened at that moment? The Bible says something so astonishingly simple, but so groundbreaking. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's all he did. He didn't even uphold the covenant. He wasn't even awake for the covenant-making ceremony. He just believed that God would do what he said he would do. And that's faith. I, I could have preached a sermon in which I said, be like Abram, but I don't want to do that because Abram did a, did a bunch of things that, that we shouldn't be doing. But here's this one sense in which you and I should be like Abram, and that is we should believe God because that, my friends, is the only way that you can be credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a righteousness that you cannot earn on your own but only can be received by faith. That's what it means, what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 4. Listen to these words. It depends on faith, Paul explains, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls existence into existence the things that do not exist. Abram's faith was counted to him as righteousness. 
But the words, listen to this, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's it. It's receiving what Jesus did on the cross for you by faith. I've heard people say this about the gospel, the simplicity of it. They say, it's, it seems so simple. Good observation. It seems so easy. It is both the simplest and the hardest thing in the world to do. It's simple because it's not by works, but it was the most costly thing. And also, it requires you to go against every, every inclination you have to earn your own way, to earn your own favor, to try to uphold your side of the covenant. We all, we all want, we all crave to have something to boast about. I've talked to people like this. They want, they want to have a part in their salvation. They want, to have, they want to be able to say, I did something. God says you can't do anything. I've done it for you. And abandoning that impulse to do it our own way is called repentance. And my friends, this is what, if you have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ, this is what you must do. God is calling you to do it. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the story of your life can be the story of grace overcoming your guilt. If you've not done that, that is something that you absolutely must do. And if you've done that, my friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what you need to do. Let your obedience to God be motivated by your faith in God and not by your efforts to save yourself. Let your belief, let your belief be the engine of your good works and your obedience. And that is a story of God's grace overcoming our guilt. Let's bow our heads. Let me speak to you just a moment as we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. This is good for us to think, hey, I don't know if the Lord has getting your attention in a special way. I know He does. He could be doing that to you right now. If He is, don't ignore it. Maybe you've been sitting in church week after week, month after month, year after year, and it's never occurred to you that, that Jesus has paid it all. You've sung it, but maybe you've never really believed it. Maybe you've always depended on your own works for your salvation. And it's become clear to you in this message that, that truly you can do nothing but cry out to faith and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That's all it takes. There is no shame in realizing that you are never trusting in Jesus truly alone for your salvation. It's the best thing that you could do to come and tell somebody who thought you were saved and say, I trusted the Lord for the first time. And if you've never done that, you can do that right here in your seat and call out to the Lord, repenting of your sin, of your own just self-centered, self-absorbed ways and believe that what Jesus did in dying on the cross was for you. I'm going to pray for you, and if, if you're praying right now in your seat, I urge you to find somebody, take a Bible, and show you more clearly or with more detail how you can 
pray and trust the Lord. Our Father, thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our church and for what you're doing in this city and the cities around it to glorify your name through the spread of your word. I pray that what is happening right here in this room as people are bowing and worshiping to you would, would just spread and continue, that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can look this way. That's Brother Bernie. He's going to come and lead us in a song. After we sing, I'll come back here to the pulpit and give some announcements and instructions to you about what's to follow with our picnic right after this. But Bernie, would you come and lead us in a song?